It's Thursday, January the 11th, 2024, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'm just one of many Hoover Fellows who are in the podcasting game these days. I encourage you to go to our website, which is hoover.org. Click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Scroll down to where it says multimedia, then move right to where it says audio podcasts. And up will come a whole slew of podcasts, about a dozen in all, including this one, which is at the top of the list. And I think that's because I strive to get the best that the Hoover Institution has to offer, this podcast being no exception. My guests today are David Brady and Doug Rivers. Dave Brady is the Hoover Institution's Davies Family Senior Fellow Emeritus and the Bowen H. and Janice Arthur McCoy Professor of Political Science in the Stanford University Graduate School of Business. Doug Rivers is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and a Stanford University Political Scientist. He's also the Chief Scientist at UGov PLC, a global polling firm. They're here to talk about the latest in politics and public opinion, which is timely as we're on the eve of the Iowa caucuses. Gentlemen, great to see you. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. And it dawns on me that we first started doing these almost eight years ago. Um, Doug blamed Brady. This was his great idea to do podcasts. But here we are almost eight years later, still going strong, I trust. Still making mistakes. Well, let's avoid making mistakes in 2024 by staying out of the prediction business. So I'm going to avoid Question number one, which is what's going to happen on Monday night? Who's going to win? Let me just kind of quickly walk you guys through the schedule, and then let's get into the, some of the more interesting aspects about 2024. Uh, as I mentioned, the uh, the caucuses uh, are Monday the 15th. Uh, after that, New Hampshire votes uh, versus the nation primary January 23rd. It's kind of a screwball primary in this regard. Uh, the Democratic Party does not uh, recognize it as they honor South Carolina as the nation's first primary, so Joe Biden will not be on the ballot there. But there's expected to be a very contentious uh, contest between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley there. New Hampshire is interesting because independents can cross over and vote into it. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, following that, the calendar gets a little interesting here, a little, little complicated. Uh, for example, February the 3rd, there's a Democratic primary in South Carolina, but Republicans don't hold their primary until later in the month, February the 24th. Nevada has also managed to complicate things. It has a non-bonding primary on February the 6th, but the Republicans will hold a party-held caucus on February the 8th. Michigan votes on February the 27th. Then we get into the heart of the schedule, March the 5th, Super Tuesday, with 16 states voting, including California and Texas. If that's not enough for you, March the 12th, Georgia, Mississippi, Washington vote. March 19th, Arizona, Florida, Illinois, Kansas, and Ohio all hold primaries. April the 2nd, Connecticut, Delaware, Rhode Island, and Wisconsin all vote. Woo. Now, I mention all this because there's a chance that this thing could be over before it started in this regard. If you look at Super Tuesday, which I remember the 16 states on the Republican side, that's 765 delegates up for grabs. And I think the uh, last I saw, I think it takes 1235 to get the uh, Republican nomination in 2024. And all about two thirds of Republican delegates will be selected in March. So, again, you could have a situation where the Republicans have a nominee a full four months before the national convention eight months before the election. Uh, if you go back to Act 2016, Donald Trump did not clinch the nomination until Memorial Day, but the race was effectively over in early May when Ted Cruz couldn't beat him in Indiana. Uh, Cruz actually turned out to win 11 primaries in that cycle. So here we are, guys, 2024. Uh, having said all this, what do you think? Does this line up very much like 2016 in terms of Trump versus the field, but also Trump with the potential to close this thing out pretty fast? Doug, what do you think? I think it'll be over in a blink. Um, so right now it looks like, uh, uh, Iowa will have Trump by, uh, 
more than 20 points. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, New Hampshire, uh, I think that's not going to be terribly close. Uh, there are polls that have shown Haley within seven points, but uh, the bulk of them are more like 20 points. And then we get to uh, South Carolina. And uh, I think if Trump wins in South Carolina, which I think he will, uh, it'll be all over on the Republican side before Super Tuesday. It was about a 30-point race in South Carolina the last I looked. So, yeah, he could sweep that Abbott very over. Dave, here's kind of the big picture question, though. Is this a good way to choose presidents by having a process that could potentially could go this fast? And then, as I mentioned, have just, you know, what World War II they called the Sitzkrieg, where there was not an actual war for months on end. Uh, the idea that you have these flurry of votes, but then you have to sit around and wait for months for a convention and then months after that for an election, it seems like an awfully dragged out process. Yeah, I uh, I would disagree just a little with Doug. I think uh, with um, the dropout of the uh, New Jersey governor, I think Haley might do a little better. She might even sneak by, but I th- I agree with Doug after that uh, in uh, Nevada and, and in Michigan and then South Carolina, it, it'll be over. But the primaries are not a very good way to, in my view, to uh, nominate uh, anybody, whether it's for the House seats or the Senate seats. And uh, it, for, for the presidency, it's it's not such a good idea. Wide open at the beginning. I, I favor having a, uh, four regional primaries or one national primary, set it up. If you're going to have primaries uh, and you uh, make them voting, turnout, uh, turnout is amazingly low in these primaries. Mm-hmm. Even in 2016, when Donald Trump had huge turnout in Iowa, it was about 11% of the total turnout in the election in Iowa in 2016. Mm-hmm. And the people who turn out, for the Democrats are uh, are on the very liberal end for the Democrats and for the Republicans, it's the conservative end. So I think you're getting candidates that uh, most people don't want. And if you sort of look at average American, they're really opposed to what looks like is going to be a sure thing, Biden versus Trump. So any process that gives you what 70% of Americans don't want, I think it'd be very hard to call that a good political process. Now, Doug, I'd like to point you to a tweet that our friend Tom Bevan uh, put out the other day. Tom Bevan is uh, one of the co-founders of Real Clear Politics along with uh, Carl Cannon, their Hoover uh, Media Fellows, uh, just good fellows to work with. Dave has written for Real Clear Politics and many occasions. Here's what Tom pointed out, guys. Uh, he looked back at 2016. He looked at the RCP average. This is Real Clear Politics, uh, taking a, a average of polls and then uh, giving you an, a, an average number of that. And what he found, Doug, was that um, going into the caucuses, Trump had a about a five-point lead over Cruz. In the final results, Cruz actually won the caucuses by about three points. What he was getting at, Doug, was that Trump over underperformed in Iowa to the tune of about four points. Ted Cruz overperformed by about four points. Marco Rubio was actually the biggest overperformer that night, uh, 6.3%. He finished a pretty close third to Trump. So what he's getting at is that, you know, to paraphrase Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. In other words, surprises could happen in Iowa. I take it a step further, Doug. I'm really pushing here to try to put drama into this, but uh, I'd point you to a column that Jim Garrity wrote in the Washington Post. Jim Garrity also writes for the National Review. He pointed to one thing, which is the weather. I don't know if you guys like to go on your phones and look at the weather app or not, but I looked up Des Moines, Iowa before he went on the air. Projected high of minus three degrees on uh, Monday, a low of minus 14 in Des Moines. Dave Brady's the son of the Midwest. He's more than familiar with this kind of ugly weather. The reason why this is relevant, you go back to 2016 in Iowa and something like 25, 27 percent of the voters in that caucus were over 65. 
in theory, it's too cold. The rose conditions aren't good. Maybe they don't turn out to vote. So, Doug, is there anything there to the unexpected in Iowa, or is just this moderator grasping at straws? I wish I could get up some enthusiasm for the unexpected to happen here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the premise is correct, which is the polling in Iowa in particular and the primaries in general is pretty unreliable. One shouldn't believe that the margin of error on these polls is, you know, three, four, uh, five points either way. It's it's more than that. Uh, but the problem here is that the size of Trump's lead is is not measured in single uh, digit numbers. It's uh, it's 20 to 30 points in Iowa. Um, and, you know, unless someone tries to make something out of, gee, he got less than 50% rather than greater than 50%. Yeah. Uh, I don't think, you know, that's the kind of surprise we would get and the kind of underperformance you might expect. Um, it's really hard with uh, a lead like this, uh, to think that there's really a lot of uncertainty in the outcome. I mean, yeah. what the Haley campaign is premised on is that uh, DeSantis drops out after uh, losing in Iowa and uh, she can make a contest of it in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, but what happens then? Is there, you know, even if the New Hampshire result was close, um, is there another state where Haley can actually uh, be competitive against Trump? Uh, that's, you know, there's this extremely narrow path uh, for her to, uh, make it a uh, two-candidate race. In yeah. fact, I think it's more likely that she's going to do worse in Iowa than anticipated, um, and that's likely to slow down any sort of enthusiasm for DeSantis to drop out or for her to pick up more in New Hampshire. Really, you think she might underperform in Iowa because the narrative seems to be that she will that she'll overperform in Iowa, but you think it might be the opposite. I think she will yeah. too. Yeah, underperform. Okay, why? I think she's going to underperform because uh, as the only one of us who's actually been to and voted in an Iowa caucus in that kind of weather, I can tell you that the turnout is dramatically affected. But you may remember in 1992 or 1988 when George Bush finished third next to Pat Roberts because it was a cold, nasty day. And people, the Bush people were home having a martini going, well, it's cold, we'll stay home. So if you look at Trump, and DeSantis and uh, Nikki Haley, her big state is New Hampshire because they're independents and independents are the least interested in politics in America. So she'll get a boost from independents, but they're not independents in Iowa. And the people who are for her are less for her. You, so if you look at MAGA Republicans and, and DeSantis, who's built a nice organization to get the vote out, I just think uh, Doug's right that the turnout is going to be MAGA Republicans and some DeSantis, and that uh, on a cold day, her her supporters who tend to be more moderate, uh, less involved in politics, they're not going to be there. You know, part of the narrative in '88, day, uh, Dave, was that a lot of uh, cars out of state license plates showed up on caucus night in Iowa. And kind of has me curious: you were were you teaching in Manhattan, Kansas at the time? And Dave Brady, did you cross state lines and come in and vote in Iowa? No, no. I was at the University of Iowa from 1964 on. Uh, I was in Houston at that point by a, by 88. Darn, Doug, I was trying to break a little news here with voter fraud on our, on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll agree to it, but it helps. Okay. 
All right, Doug, let me throw yet another scenario at you. And this is 1984. Since uh, we're not going to play along with 2016, let's go to 1984 in this regard. What happens in Iowa in 1984? It's not a competitive uh, – de- the, the Republican side's not that interesting because Ronald Reagan's running for re-election. It's the Democrats who have all the drama. What happens that night? Walter Mondale Pertner gets 50% of the vote. And 50%, as Doug mentioned, is kind of a magic number. I think W. Bush surpassed it in 2000, but rarely does a caucus candidate um, crack that. But Walter, Walter Mondale got close 48.9%. So who is the winner in the caucus that night? Gary Hart. Yeah. Right. It wasn't, I was going to say it wasn't Mondale. Gary Hart right. got the, because of expectations. Only in American yeah. politics, Gary Hart gets one third of what Walter Mondale did. Mondale 48.9%. Hart 16.5, McGovern 10.3%. Some chap named Uncommitted got 9.4%, which was better than Alan Cranston, John Glenn, and Jesse Jackson. But Doug, this gets back to what you're talking about. Gary Hart, quote unquote, won the night because he outperformed with 16.5%. We then go a week later from that into New Hampshire, and Hart actually takes it to Mondale. He beats him by nine points, New Hampshire. But Here's where 1984 maybe doesn't hold up a 2024 in this regard. The Democratic race that year is pretty friggin' competitive. Uh, if you look in the first half of uh, March, Gary Hart did very well. The second half belonged to Mondale. Uh, Hart actually ended up winning more contests in that election, 26 to 22 for Mondale. Um, you see, uh, though, Mondale pulled away in April. But here's, I think, where the parallel doesn't match up, Doug. I'm going to get your thoughts on this. Mondale was, was in many regards, a weak primary candidate in this regard. Hart was chipping away at Mondale supporter among union voters, elderly, uh, economically worse off, what the New York Times called at the time, quote, regular white Democrats. I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure you could even say that in this woke day and age. Uh, the point was you saw kind of early signs for what would trouble Mondale come the fall. But this begs the question of, is Donald Trump, Doug, in any kind of similar position to Walter Mondale, or is he just a much more formidable front runner? Oh, the enthusiasm for Trump among the Republican base is uh, incredible. Um, but remember, the 80s were the high point of the sort of momentum uh, view of presidential primaries. Uh, that is, it didn't matter whether you won or lost. It de- depended on whether you did better than expectations. Um, yep. So famously, after the 1980 uh uh, election where uh, George H.W. Bush uh, won in the Iowa caucuses. He had the big mo, and then uh, he lost in New Hampshire, and he had the little mo. And you know, those days are there hasn't been a candidate that's done well because of momentum in a very long time. There've been I don't plenty of candidates office. losing Iowa and New Hampshire, um, but essentially everyone uh, ending up voting the way you would have expected at the beginning. You, you guys must be missing the point. The question was, what's uh, this was a little different. 19, it wasn't. Do you remember uh, when presidential candidate Hart lost the 1984 election? Hart did not win the nomination. Mondale won the nomination. Right. Yes. And the point is that he was ahead. He, had, he did better. Momentum made some little adjustments. But the fact is, Mondale won. And it looks like the same thing is true for Trump. Yeah. But, it's not very yeah, the point, hard. To the point, find the point I'm getting at is at 84. Uh, Hart punched him in the mouth early. And then yes. there was a genuine race, and that race dragged out past California in June, even. Yep. Uh, but the problem there, as I was getting into Doug with, was that, you know, Mondale was just at the end of the day, he was a weak front runner. And you could saw, even in, in polls at that time, you saw, you know, Democrats already saying openly they probably would vote for Reagan in it. So, you know, yeah. I just, I don't think that's where the parallel, you know, matches up 40 years later. Yeah. And, and 
Trump is a strong front runner, both in the Republican base and doing well in the trial heats against Biden. Oh, I, I, you know, I want to disagree with that one. So three quarters of Americans don't want either one of them to run. When right. you ask a question that says, who are you going to vote for, Trump or Biden? You'll get a response. But I would not call either one of them strong candidates. I, I don't if, disagree if with that at all. Morning, if there was I'm, a vote tomorrow morning saying yes or no, these guys, it'd be no. But I think what Doug would say is he's a strong candidate within the small sliver of Republicans who are going to turn out to vote in these early primary states. No, that's that's a different thing than saying they're a strong candidate across the country. They're not. Yeah, that's. No. I don't disagree with you on that, Dave. The uh, the strength that Trump has is among, you know, half of the Republican primary voters, uh, and there doesn't appear to be anything he can do that will lose that. We've seen much of anything like that in a very long time. Yeah, I look, by the way, at uh, likely Republican primary voters mm -hmm. and among them, Trump has an even larger lead than we've been talking about among people likely to turn out in those things. And Haley is actually uh, falls a little bit below DeSantis because I think her strength is not really among uh, conservative Republicans. Let me throw a couple of theories at you guys and that if you look at the struggles of um of uh, Ron DeSantis, and then you look at Nikki Haley and this kind of long shot gamble she has at trying to get the nomination, you have your questions of st of strategy that maybe just don't work out. I mean, DeSantis' strategy going to this was pretty simple. He made the assumption that he was the heir apparent to Donald Trump. He wouldn't portray himself that way. There's a problem here, though. Donald Trump's on the ballot. So how can you be the heir apparent when the, when the guy you're trying to be the heir apparent to you're running against? But then in Haley's case, let's talk about this maybe a little more in depth. She's gambling that Republicans want an alternative. But as we're seeing in these votes across the country, Republicans are not moving off from Trump. Yeah, I think, you know, it potentially might have been different if uh, Biden was leading Trump uh, in the polls by five or 10 points. Yeah. Uh, the fact that Trump is actually even or slightly ahead of Biden in the polls mm -hmm. um, doesn't give most Republicans any sort of reason to uh, look elsewhere. And they're more likely to think that uh, Republicans are more likely to think that Trump will win versus Biden than Democrats uh, think that Biden is likely to win. Yeah, yeah there's a big gap in that. That's one of the oddities of selection. It seems to me that in some regards, you know, Joe Biden is Donald Trump's insurance policy in this regard. I can beat this guy. And certainly Donald Trump is Joe Biden's insurance policy that I can beat this guy as well. And so that's part of part of the trap the American people have managed to find themselves into. So we've talked about Trump's hold on the party. I want to get your thoughts for a minute, Doug, on a uh, some numbers that you put out uh, via your CBS YouGov poll the other day. This is the third anniversary of the January 6th riots and what you found in your poll. 51% of respondents expect the losing side to accept the loss peacefully. 49% expect violence. That's quite a striking uh, statistic, isn't it? It is. Um, meanwhile, I think in the same poll, 70% believe democracy is under threat. 30% believe democracy is secure. I want to point you guys to that 70% number because this seems to be Joe Biden's ticket to ride now. He has given two campaign speeches so far. He hasn't talked about the economy. He hasn't talked about foreign policy. He hasn't talked about a robust second term agenda. He's talked about one thing, and that is democracy hanging by a loose thread and Donald Trump standing next to it with a big pair of scissors. I think that's what gets the Democratic vote out. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't, I don't, if you look at young people, African-American voters, Hispanics, they're, they're not, Hispanics aren't happy with the border policy, so on, you go down the list, 
the one thing that Democrats seem to agree on is what you said earlier, Donald Trump is Biden's insurance policy. Yeah, I mean, a, a third of the Democrats don't want Biden to run for re-election. Those are terrible numbers for an incumbent president. Um, the enthusiasm for Biden among Democrats is, uh, let's say, muted. Uh, and particularly among younger voters, uh, where uh, he uh, uh, doesn't get very good approval numbers for how he's handling uh, the situation in Gaza. You know, he, he would normally be in a very weak position. Um, but the thing that unites Democrats is they do not want uh, another term of Donald Trump. Yeah. Is that one third number historic, Doug? Uh, did, do you know offhand if Jimmy Carter polled the same or Lyndon Johnson polled the same in 1968? We weren't doing any national polling back then in the pre-internet age. Um, th that's a good question. We should uh, dig it out. Um, but, you know, the odd thing was uh, we didn't ask in uh, 2020 whether people wanted Trump to run for re-election. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we didn't think it was an issue and didn't ask about it. Yeah. Well, Dave, this raises an interesting question to me. If Doug is right and one third of Democrats don't want Joe Biden to run again, why is there not a more robust challenge to him? I mean, there is one rather gadfly congressman running. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. did it for a while. He's now running as an independent. But, you know, I can point you to a lot of big name Democrats who certainly seem to want to run in 2028. But nobody is stepping up and doing it in 2024. I, I think there's a couple of reasons for it. First, uh, imagine that uh, imagine that even four months ago, the field had started to get crowded. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the Democratic field, what was it like? They're all to the left. So you remember in 2020 when they asked at the debate, should we shut down ICE? Mm -hmm. Let the border open? Right. And everybody but Biden said yes. So I think the first thing that happened in a primary, the candidates who could win a guy like Shapiro of uh, Pennsylvania or the governor of uh, Michigan, who are uh, sort of more centrist. Uh, but the bottom line is, I, I don't see how they get through a Democratic primary, which is dominated by the left. That's one. And two, uh, given that, uh, what, it, what it might look like, I, I, think, I think people say, well, who's the better candidate? Who could we, who's the one person we could pull out now who would definitely do better? I think there's talent on the bench, but I don't think there is. You could name somebody who would definitely do better. Yeah. And it would be suicidal for most of those people to run. As history tells us, you don't you don't kill the king. Yes. Regicide just doesn't work. Presidential politics. Yeah. You know, there's there's no obvious Democratic alternative. I think there are a set of candidates that um, could run pretty well, uh, but individually, you know, it's not like 1980, if, if we're rehearsing the past, when it was Jimmy Carter versus Ted Kennedy. And Ted Kennedy was the obvious alternative to Carter. Um, th there are a handful of Democratic candidates that I think could probably beat Trump. Uh, but uh, beating Biden, I think, would be difficult for any one of them individually. Mm -hmm. You have an incumbent president who, uh, you know, has delivered... Uh, on quite a few things that he promised uh, and has a reasonably good economy. Uh, normally, this is not the situation where the incumbent president would be challenged. Um, the dissatisfaction with Biden, I think, is almost entirely his age. By the yeah, way, yeah. Carter, uh, I did 
look it up in the American presidency because my suspicion was that Carter was lower. Uh, he was at 32 percent. And Doug, what number would you describe to Biden right now? I know it bounces between the high 30s and the into the 40s. Where would you where would you ballpark him? And uh, his approval rating and, you know, average is around 40 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, if you that's look, th- that's not a good number for incumbent <laughs> president, uh, particularly when the economy is reasonably good. You know, I think the Biden campaign is counting on uh, the public eventually uh, coming around to saying the economy is not terrible. Uh, It's not the worst economy ever. It's actually a relatively decent economy. I don't think the economy moves as many voters as it used to. You're not going to take the Trump base and they're going to wake up one morning and saying, well, inflation is, you know, two, three percent. The unemployment rate is low. Gee, I, I'm thinking about voting for Joe Biden. That's not going to happen. It seems to me the economy is hard to explain to voters right now. Um, one of the White House economic advisors went in front of the cameras the other day and she started explaining how well the economy is and started getting the stats about purchasing power and so forth. And it strikes me as just a rather difficult uh, message to sell to voters at a base level. But, uh, you know, Dave, I went back and I looked up what Barack Obama, uh, what his approach was to running for re-election in uh, 2011 and 2012. And this is interesting, worth noting. April 2011, Obama uh, announces that he's running for re-election and his campaign puts out a two-minute video, and the video's title was called It Begins With Us. And here's what's striking about the video. It does not feature Barack Obama at all. He doesn't say a word in it. It stars Democrats saying they voted for him in 2008, they believe in him, and they plan to vote for him again. So the Obama campaign didn't go after Democrats. Granted, they didn't know who the nominee was at that point. They didn't have Trump staring at them. But they talked about bucking up their own guy. And the Biden approach seems to be different. Rather than bucking up their guy, they're going after the likely opponent. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's right. I think that's why Biden's uh, recent speeches have been about democracy and uh, trying to firm up black voters with a speech in South Carolina. By the way, I just looked up LBJ. Uh, well, there's a nice project called the American Presidential Project at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. Yes. Nice website. And LBJ was about forty uh, percent in uh, in uh, nineteen sixty eight when he when he decided he wouldn't run again. And remember, he did win. Was forty percent approval? Yeah, forty percent approval. approval. Oh, it's not a good number. He did win the New Hampshire primary. It's better than Carter. Yeah. Right. He did win. He did win New Hampshire. People seem to think he lost to McCarthy, but he won the primary. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he wanted that was Biden. that was again back in the era where McCarthy did better than expected. Yes. Well, Doug, wouldn't you think if, uh, or Bill, you too, wouldn't you think that if uh, uh, whatever it is, DeSantis loses 46-43 or 46-40, that would make a difference? Absolutely. Okay, so then expectations still matter. I, I agree they probably matter. Well, it, it matters in the following sense, um, that in multi-candidate elections, uh, the candidates that are third or lower uh, essentially have their votes uh, are thrown away. They're wasted. Um, and so the big game is how do you make it a a race in which you are one of the top two candidates? Right. Um, and if you are among the top two candidates, um, then it essentially by the end of the primary season is a straight up vote between two candidates. We've never had a situation where uh, at the very end, you had three uh, equally uh, uh, strong candidates. Um, and, 
you know, the situation here is, yes, at some point, uh, DeSantis or Haley is going to emerge as the second Republican candidate, but it is going to be way too late. And uh, the they will still be 30 points behind Trump. Um, so it's not going to do you any good ending up as a one on one race with Trump if you're 30 points down against them. That's well put. I, I agree with that. So we have something of an anomaly in uh, American politics if this pans out, if it is uh, a repeat of 2020 and Trump versus Biden, and that um, I've heard it described as a two incumbents election, and that you have an incumbent president and then a former president with name recognition and presence like Trump is, in fact, also an incumbent, if you will. And I guess you could say maybe 1912 was similar to this when you had uh, both Taft and Roosevelt on the ballot, though TR was running as an independent, so a different kind of election. Then before that, you'd have to go to 1892. And the rematch between Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison. But here's a question for you, Dave. You have a very well-known entity in Joe Biden, with people having very strong positions about him pro and con. Uh, Donald Trump would be an understatement to say that people have strong feelings about him pro and con. Here's the question for you two to ponder. Who's persuadable in this matchup between these two? Well, the persuadables uh, generally are the people who are a little out of line with the party. So that means... If you ask people in the Republican Party that they say they're conservative or moderate or liberal, about 80 percent say they're uh, conservative. And so there's 20 percent moderates. And for the Democrats, it's a bigger number. The Democrats are more. It's about 35 to 40 percent of Democrats aren't liberal, mostly moderate. And over time, it's those people who vote for the other party. Now, the problem is in 1972, when Nixon won a third of Nixon's vote came from Democrats. Mm -hmm. And in 1964, about 20, 20, 25%, 20% of uh, the vote for LBJ came from Republicans. The right. trouble is once the parties have sorted, there are very few liberals and moderates in the Republican party. And there are very, uh, and a much smaller number of moderates and conservatives in the Democratic party. So the number of persuadables is that, I don't know, Doug, maximum 10% of the party members? That'd be maxed, I think. Yeah, I think the number of swing voters is in the order of 10% at the moment, which is smaller than it was in the past. Um, there are, I think, three groups uh, that you look for. You know, I think uh, the first is uh, suburban voters uh, as a group have moved uh, in the Democratic direction in recent years. Um you know, so that's a group that Democrats have been doing much better in than they used to do. Um, but they aren't um, hardcore Democrats that are part of the Democratic base. They can be peeled off. And I think, uh, you know, it looks like Biden is losing a bit of those on economic issues. Um, if the alternative were any Republican other than Trump, I think you would see a whole bunch of them uh, moving back towards the Republicans. But, Doug, the, does, but but I'm sorry, Doug, but does the economy really move these persuadables or are we looking at some other issues such as with Biden age and with Trump temperament? Well, I think with Trump, you got what you've got. That everybody knows who he is. And, um, you know, Biden can't do much about his age, uh, um, though I think it's less explicitly age than um, the vibe that he gives. Uh, you know, he does give a quite uh, old vibe. Um, it, it is an old mind because, for the record, he is actually younger than Harrison Ford. He's younger than Barbara Streisand. He's younger than Martin Scorsese. But it's it's 
My apologies to any Arctic. I, I don't think he's being cast as the next Indiana Jones. Yeah, it's an it's an old eighty one. You know, the point at which Biden's support seemed to fall was when we had a uh, increase in inflation, and the Biden numbers are much worse on handling the economy than anything else. And I think that is is an issue as much as anything that hits uh, some swing voters. Um, I, I want to point out. I think Doug's right. And you know when. When people say, oh, inflation is down. Well, if you think about it like this, if a year ago you bought an item, if before inflation went up 100%, you bought an item for a dollar, and now it's $2. And then they say, oh, inflation only went up 2% two cent, 2 this year. Oh, great. It's still $2.02. And, and that's what people see when they go in the grocery stores. Things cost more. So I agree with Doug. That, that's a problem. This is the challenge I noticed going back to that White House uh, uh, economics postperson the other day. She went on and on about buying power and how Americans now have more money at their disposal. But <laughs> that doesn't change the fact that people's tea stuff is too expensive. And I can tell you, as a single guy who goes to the grocery store and shops and implements, you know, there are two kinds of shoppers. Right? People who go out and buy like two or three days worth of stuff and people who go out and buy, you know, two weeks worth of stuff and have, you know, two two cartons. Uh, what used to be 30 or $40 worth of stuff is now worth $50 worth of stuff. And you look at it and you think... How did this happen? So that's I think that's part of the bind that the Biden people have to find a way to talk around. You can again well, talk Biden, about the slogan Bidenomics didn't do it. Well, whoever, whoever suggests he attach his name to that plan probably. Yeah. <laughs> they they probably segue out of the White House and went to work for Claudine Gay at Harvard after that. So in terms of in terms of good policies. I'll uh, stay away from that. No comment by the crowd. Me too. Yes. <laughs> Former product of the Stanford Political Science Department, correct? Uh, she was US. a fellow faculty member for a while. She's a very nice person, very and, and smart actually. Okay, so let's get back to persuadables for a minute in this regard, the pool of persuadables, because one thing which you're going to have here, uh, uh, perhaps the first time since 1992, is a significant third party presence. And you know, I think we should all probably write down on a piece of paper what we think the third party vote's going to turn out with and look at it come November rather than actually say out loud. But you have right now Robert Kennedy Jr., Cornell West, Jill Stein, Green Party uh, candidate. They're all in. Uh, we still don't know what the no labels movement is going to produce. They could put a Democrat as the presidential pick or a Republican. So that's kind of a big what if. Um, I follow this with great fascination because one of the many scars I carry is that I worked on the 1992 Bush reelect campaign where we had to deal with a fellow named Ross Perot. And what did Ross Perot do in 1992? He got about 18.9% of the national vote. He didn't win a single electoral vote. But boy, he scrambled the map. He scrambled Dave Brady's map. He got about 20% of the vote in California, Dave. He got 26% of the vote in Montana, and Bill Clinton carried Montana yep. and, and carried California as well. So I want your guys' thoughts on two things. Number one, the potency of third parties, and then the great you know parlor game right now, the great parlor guessing game. Who benefits more from this, Trump or Biden? My view, the, my view is that uh, Perot cost Bush re-election. These guys, uh, it's not so. I think Cornell West and Jill Stein are going to hurt Biden, yeah. Whatever extent they get votes, but Robert Kennedy, I think, uh, given his uh, some of his theories about vaccinations and so on, I think he may. And a little bit of the poll I saw, Doug, you had him in the poll. Uh, he was getting more votes from looked like Trump supporters than or, or Republicans than he was getting from Democrats. Yeah, it's hard to predict exactly yeah. how that's going to evolve. Uh, I'm willing to take the under on any number that you put for what the third party vote will be. Um, 1%. I, 
<laughs> well, um, you know, I, I do think the Cornell West, Jill Stein sort of thing is going to be uh, very low. Uh, you know, to, they could easily not break 1%. Right. Um, RFK Jr. is a little different. The, the, the appeal is is different and the name is uh is better known but again i think his support will shrink and and in the end uh i don't think he's going to be much of a factor in terms of you know what's the impact if we have an election as close as 2020 or 2016 Mm -hmm. um any of these candidates is enough to make the difference um you know the vote that ralph nader took in 2000 in florida was enough to swing that election it cost um, New Hampshire too. Yeah. Yeah. That all these candidates are going to get more than 10,000 votes in the big state, which is what the margin was in 2020, uh, Georgia and, and Arizona. I, I think I agree with Dave that the RFK Jr. thing is he's evolved much more to an anti vax candidate. So if that's something you really care about, uh, you know, he may suck some votes there that would otherwise go to Trump. Uh, but Stein and West uh, are you know, appealing to people who would otherwise be uh, Democratic voters. Okay, fellas, yeah, what, about the no, what about the no labels ticket? Because here in theory, you would have a centrist, balanced, Democratic, Republican appealing, not to your hearts, but your minds. I think they're going to have a very hard time picking. Uh, first of all, if you pick a Democrat to run on top and then a Republican as vice president, do they switch after two years? Uh, because otherwise... Uh, it's, in other words, if it's a Democrat on top of the ticket, why wouldn't that hurt Biden? If it's a Republican, why wouldn't that hurt Trump? Yeah, they may be moderate, but I, I don't see I don't see much of a way for them to get into the race without uh, affecting it and in a in a probably a negative way. What do I mean by that? If you look at 2020, where where uh, Biden gets more than seven million more votes than Trump, but it's really decided by 44,000 votes in three states. Wisconsin, Arizona, and Georgia. So if it's decided by that few votes, what Doug says about the candidates, Jill Stein, uh, the other, that could affect things. 5,000 votes in Arizona could determine who who's, uh, who's the next president of the United States. That is not a good political system. So you want approval voting? No, I don't. <laughs> Well, so this, so let me ask you to let me appeal to the political scientists and both of you. What, how do we build a better mousetrap here? How do we come up with a better system? Now, Dave, Dave, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, you mentioned national uh, national primary day. Well, I think national primary, I think uh, national primaries or four regional primaries would be better than what we have. Yeah. And the other thing is that's decidable by the parties. You don't have to have uh, all these other reforms, like increase the size of the House of Representatives of 600. There are certain people saying get rid of the Senate, uh, all those sorts of things. Uh, that That's nonsense. There's not uh, there's no way as closely divided as American politics are. We're not going to have a constitutional amendment. Reforming the primary system is something the parties can do for themselves. They've done it before. They did it in 1972, and Ben Ginsburg tells me after 2000, there was a serious move in the Republican Party uh, to do it again. So I've, I'm looking at primaries as the most feasible way to try and change things. I don't think there's any uh, easy institutional fix that deals with the polarization problem, which is why the primaries are 
leading to relatively extreme outcomes. Um, you know, at, at the state level, like in California, uh, you know, having these top two primaries uh, is a situation that does cure a lot of the problems. Uh, right. But there's no way to do that at the presidential level. No, that's a good point. Doug, maybe you need to ask a poll question, some variation of the Shakespeare line that the fault lies not in the stars but ourselves. And maybe try to get from voters a sense, is the problem here that you don't like the process or is the problem here that you just don't like the principles? Because in the time we've been doing this podcast, we had a not so pleasant choice of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in 2016. I don't think people were doing jumping jacks and somersaults over Trump and Biden in 2020. And as Dave mentioned earlier, two thirds of three fourths of voters do not like the choice of Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So, you know, yeah. as much as we can rag on the system, maybe it's just the fact that we're kind of just, you know, it's sort of what they call the dance of lemons in education. We're just, you know, putting rather unsavory choices before voters. Yeah. The, the thing to remember is, um, you know, the statistic that two thirds of the public doesn't want the choice between Trump and Biden mm -hmm. um, ignores the fact that two thirds of Republicans do want Trump to run and half of the Democrats do want Biden to run. Mm -hmm. uh, the dissatisfaction with this choice is among a minority in each party and among independents. And the nomination process specifically excludes or at least discourages independents from participating. Um, if, you know, a positive reform would be a way to uh, uh, allow independents to participate in the process. If Democrats are unhappy with the choice of Biden, you know, in theory, they could participate, for example, in the New, New Hampshire Republican primary and contribute to a uh, more desirable Republican alternative. That doesn't happen under the rules in most states and has never really happened in practice. The amount of crossover voting in primaries is quite low. Well, the yeah, party, Dave, party leaders don't want it. Yes. The, well, the system is designed by first. I mean, this year's system was rigged by Biden and Trump. Uh, both of them have changed the rules to benefit their campaigns. Uh, in the Biden case, it was, you know, getting rid of Iowa and New Hampshire as the first two primaries and going to South Carolina. Uh, not otherwise known as a democratic stronghold or a swing state. Uh, yeah, um, and, you know, Trump has done a variety of things to make the uh, delegate allocations be winner take all. You know, so you've got the uh, design of the system in the hands of people with a particular interest in an outcome, and it's not uh, getting uh, centrist candidates. So I, I actually think that if you went back and thought about what if you had four regional or one national primary, I don't think Jimmy Carter would have gotten the nomination. I don't think Bill Clinton would have gotten the nomination. If you remember, he lost Iowa and New Hampshire with a third place finish. He was talking about the comeback kid. Right. And went after that. But maybe Clinton would have won. But I don't think I don't think Carter would have won. And in 2016. I in don't 76, think you mean. What? Yeah, in sorry. 76. 1976. I don't think Carter would have. And in 2016, I don't think Donald Trump, if it had been, it had been one national or four regional, I don't think he would have won. Well, what's interesting about the regional approach is this, and I can relate to this having worked for Pete Wilson in the 1990s when he ran for president, and he based a large part of his strategy on the inability to go to New Hampshire and campaign in person. But his theory was he could just blanket the state with television ads and do well that way. If Dave, you had 
say four regional primaries or maybe six straight or eight weeks where he had multiple states, that would benefit what? A candidate with a lot of money at his or her disposal in high name recognition. And that would take away the pressure from going to Iowa and having to spend months on end. The DeSantis strategy of going to 99 counties, as did Ted Cruz in 2016. So maybe to go back and revise history, you know, maybe in 1992, if you have regional primaries, Mario Cuomo decides to run. Why? Because he has name recognition, a lot of money coming out of New York, and he doesn't have to go schlep his way through New Hampshire and Iowa. So maybe you're on. Yeah. You know, the other thing that occurs to me is if you look at, you know, going back to the grocery store, if you want to look at how popular products are, it's very simple. Are they selling? Are they flying off the shelf or not? And the question would be, is that analogous in politics? Because what you would relate it to is the system popular or not popular, the candidates popular or not popular. How many votes How many votes are there in an election? How many people are turning out? But here I'm kind of confused because on the one hand, the choices aren't good. But then you look at the election results, higher numbers than ever because we're making it easier for people to vote. So how do we really judge if the system is working well? Or do we need to do a poll on that? <laughs> No, I think in general, if you ask people, are they satisfied with the choices they've been getting? Uh, they certainly haven't been terribly satisfied in recent years with uh, the alternatives. Uh, the, um, I mean, the interesting thing about Trump is actually there is a fair fraction of the Republican base that's quite enthused about Trump and uh, is happy to get him. Um, in 2016... As you recall from uh, the YouGov recontact survey, where you interviewed the same 5,000 people from May of 2015 to the present, uh, if there had been one uh, one national primary, certainly at the beginning, you couldn't want the governor, the governor of uh, Wisconsin at that time, Scott, whatever, I forget his last Walker. name. Scott Walker. Yeah, he was uh, very popular at the start of that, and Trump uh, finished, was, was, was not high. Uh, so, you know, that's not that I want to say get rid of those primaries, but remember, remember the old strategy was Iowa and New Hampshire were retail politics. You went in there and you had to actually meet voters and shake hands. And that got rid of the street sweepers. And then you went to the Super Tuesday where you could uh, get down to, you know, among the candidates that are left. Now we can decide a winner and get it over with. So we know who who is the candidate and then we can get campaigning on it. And that 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 is, uh, I think that that rationale is just gone now. There, it's not like that. You can't go back to that system. Doug, I don't think we mentioned the name Scott Walker around Tallahassee these days, do we? <laughs> um, what, I'm, what I'm getting at, Scott Walker in 2015 was the greatest thing since sliced bread, yeah. and he was going to dominate the Republican primary yes. to be the next president, and it just didn't work out. And here we are now, eight years. There's later. a long history of these candidates. Yeah. I know there should you be know, like an there should be like an annual award for this, or at least every four years, somebody should get that yes, trophy. The Ed Muskie Memorial Trophy. Uh, yeah, t- the theory of the system was you had these small states with retail politics, as Dave said, and then you had a winnowing of candidates. So um, you could start with 15, 20 candidates, and then you'd be down to a handful, mm-hmm. and then have something like Super Tuesday. Uh, which would get you down to two candidates. And then the end of the process, uh, you know, the final outcome would be determined by, uh, you know, the big states uh, running at the very end of the process. Um, That system has broken down entirely. It's now, you know, the cost of running these campaigns, Haley and uh, DeSantis have spent $70 million a piece uh, that's a lot of retail politics. 
Well, I think of DeSantis, you're not even including the super PAC money, are you? That's right. That's just a fraction of the total amount that's spent. By the way, is maybe another lesson in this. Maybe Florida governor's current and past should maybe not bet everything on a super PAC. Yes. Referring to to Jeb Bush in 2016. Created a super PAC and he was out after South Carolina as well. Okay, guys, final question. I appreciate your time today. You do a lot of uh, polling behind the scenes at Hoover and you do a contact poll. You keep after same group of voters and keep coming after them. What are you doing with them in 2024? What do you want to find out from them? Yeah, so we've just uh, done a baseline interview of close to 100,000 people that we are going to be dividing in the groups and recontacting them either four or 15 times over Mm -hmm. the next uh, year and a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're going to be able to track movements in relatively small groups. Um, you know, th- this is going to be an election. That. You got down about Yale and Arizona State. Yeah. So the, the project is being done jointly with Hoover and a group at Yale and Arizona State. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we have surveys in the field every week now through January of 2025. Um, so we'll have much more to talk about, but, uh, the baseline with, uh, is just being completed. And, uh, the first wave of the, uh, the weekly polls, uh, went into the field yesterday. Yeah, so I would say you... that that's very important, uh, among other things that it's going to solve. First of all, it'd be over, uh, would be really good sampling in the states that are going to determine the election. Right. But even more than that, you remember, there's all these campaign events that the press talks about, Romney's 47%, Hillary's deplorables. And uh, with this panel, we're going to have enough size to see if those uh, events like that, that the press treats as significant, really make any difference. Yeah. So that is my exit question. What do you guys hope to get out of the tracking survey? What do you hope to find that we don't get out of current polling? So the first thing is national polling, you know, samples of 1,000, 2,000 aren't enough to get to groups. And they're groups that are very interesting in this campaign. I mentioned earlier suburban voters. Uh, another is young voters uh, who clearly have an uncomfortable relationship with Biden. Right. Uh, there are a lot of polls out there based on very small samples uh, suggesting Biden is actually behind among under 30 voters. Uh, I don't think that's right, but uh, it's hard to tell with a small sample. Uh, And the last are minorities uh, that um, you've seen a significant peeling away of especially Hispanics, but also to some extent black men uh, from the Democrats. And we'd like to understand why that's happening, whether that's part of a longer run process. Um, Dave, the Republican equivalent would be women. Suburban women? Yes. Yes. And what other groups? Latinos? Latinos are ones that Republicans are hoping to make uh, gains among. Um, And then the question is, to what extent do suburban voters, particularly uh, ideologically moderate uh, voters, uh, tend to come back to the Republican fold? Uh, And then, you know, we have some events that are coming up uh, that... uh, there's likely to be a trial in which Donald Trump is in. So it's going to be an unusual year in which uh, the places in which you hear from the candidates won't be the same as always in the past. And Also, uh, with the election, uh, with the sample this size, 
there's always the question of, you know, people put X first, X second. Uh, and so we know what on aggregate people say is the most important issue and second. And we know the difference between the party. But we don't know among individual voters if you say inflation is an important issue, so is immigration. There's another one that's important. How those things trade off. And I think with a sample size this way, we'll be in a better position to talk about how those trade-offs moved over time. Okay, Doug Rivers, I'm going to give you the last question. Just as people in Washington tend to take time off in the summer because it's a slow time of the year, things kind of grind to a halt. As somebody who watches the election week in and week out, if Doug Rivers were planning a one-month cruise at sea, when would Doug Rivers book that cruise? Would he be booking it in March? Would he be booking it in April, May, June? I think I started out by saying it's going to be over by early March, uh, maybe even um, over in February. Um, so I, I, I hear that's a good time to uh, head to warmer climates. I, I've known Doug Rivers for a very, very long time, and I can tell you one thing. He's going to be up at 6 a.m. and he's going to be in bed late at night, and it's not going to have anything to do with the damn cruise. <laughs> okay, guys, well, I hope we can parlay that into getting you back on this podcast soon because it's going to be a very curious election year, and I think that we play talk. Hey, thanks for coming on today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Anytime. Thanks, Bill. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and X feeds. Our X handle is at Hoover Inst. That's H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. Dave Brady is not on social media, but Doug Rivers is. And you can find him at at Doug underscore Rivers. I'd also refer him to his excellent polling company, YouGov. That's at at YouGov, which is spelled Y-O-U-G-O-V. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the show, which is Hoover.org. While you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Dave Brady and Doug Rivers and their Hoover colleagues to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.